0: Well, good morning, turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17 to begin with this morning but we finished last week we finished uh, the series on the family and if you uh, missed though that series or any of that series and you want to go back i have put them online if you go to our website you can click on sermons there up at the top and you can uh, get into those and if so if you want to review um please feel free uh, to do that uh this morning so we're going to start a new series and we're going to begin with the with the book of First Thessalonians. I got to get a staple out here. I hate turning pages up here when there's staples are in it. But this book, First Thessalonians, was the first letter that was canonized, or the, the earliest letter that Paul wrote that became a part of the New Testament. And, and it was actually written on his second missionary journey. And again, here's where kind of I've been going with some of my thoughts and as to why I chose this book of 1 Thessalonians. All of the books, when you look at the scriptures, all of them are unique. But they're also written with different intentions and different authors. So there's a different flavor, in one sense, with every book. When you think of the Gospels, you think of the life of Jesus and how we're called to follow Him. That's from that perspective. But Paul, in many of his letters, wrote to specific churches. As you know, he planted so many churches, and he loved these churches, he cared for them, and he would write letters back to them, encouraging them in, in very specific ways. And, and that's why I, I think, in one sense, like 1 Thessalonians, it really connects with a local church. It, it points to us as a group, and, and we can learn so much in doing that. But there's a second reason as well, when I, I think of 1 Thessalonians, um. In the time, in that point in history, that church was, it was really the early stages of beginning of persecution toward the church, toward the gospel. There was an antagonism for anything of truth. The Romans, it was going to get worse from this point out, actually. And understand that I think in many ways it mirrors a bit where we're at in kind of where we're at in our culture. The recognition that our culture is going to become more and more antagonistic to Jesus. And this book speaks to applying that to us really quite, um, in, really quite profoundly, I, I think, in a great way. So that's kind of what the relevancy, I think, of it. And I, what I t- did, I, I titled this series, A Healthy Church in a Broken World. See, this church really was doing well in spite of persecution, in spite of people pushing against the gospel and against those who were coming to faith as well. But Paul loves this church. But let me give you kind of the context of it and, and why I start, we'll, we'll see why we started on Acts chapter 17. Paul and his partner Silas, set out on what's titled Paul's second missionary journey here. And Timothy, who was a convert, joined them along the way, and the three began traveling. Into first of all, they began to go back and visit some of the churches that Paul had founded before. But also that he they go in they want to go into new territory. God had said, Paul, take it even farther to those that have never heard the gospel. And so what he does, he goes up to Turkey and visits some of the churches in the he had visited he had started previously. But then God goes, okay, now. Christ crossover, and he moved into what we would consider Greece during the second journey. And, and the first stop, he stopped at the city of Philippi and, and sent, uh, spent a significant amount of time there and, and in building and starting this church, and then he moves on to the city of Thessalonica. And that's where we pick it up. Thessalonica was a, a thriving city back then. It was on the crossroads between Rome and those that and heading east and west. So it was a very important city. And, and this is where we come in Acts chapter seventeen. And I'll put that on the screen and you can follow in your uh in your Bibles. Now, understand, they would have had understanding of the Messiah, and so that's why he would go in. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. They were assuming again that Paul was probably staying with this Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men! Who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason had received them, and they were acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king called Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed. And when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, a reminder here Paul had an intentional method as he was planting these churches. He would go through a city, and if they had a synagogue, he would stop there and start there in terms of building a church and presenting the gospel. Now, history tells us that whenever you would get about 10 Jewish families in a city together, that's when they would usually start a synagogue in that particular city. And so Paul would go in and proclaim Jesus with those Jews who was also looking, they were looking for a Messiah. But we also see here that in verse 2 there, there was three different times that he went to preach the gospel in this particular synagogue. Now, scholars would say this, is that the way it's written there in the Greek, it really isn't about three consecutive Sundays. Many estimate that he probably would have stayed in that church about four to six months, somewhere in that vicinity. So it would have been a length of time there. But on three occasions, he goes in, People respond. And, and now understand as well in the context here, this would have been about 15 years after Paul's conversion, after, after his experience in the road to Damascus. And recognize as well that it's hinted at in here is that Paul had a reputation. And they probably knew this name Paul before he even got to the city. And so he comes in, he's been planting churches and going into synagogues in other towns and that would have spread, and so they view Paul as a traitor. That's how they would have viewed him as, they, as he came into the city. But people respond, the hearts were open, the spirit worked, and a great number of Greeks and really a whole cross-section of the city responded to Paul and his message, and, and some of the Jews as well opened their hearts. But it's a great picture, I think. When God works, when God prepares the way, guess what? Things happen. So God was birthing this church. Now, they do suspect as well that the majority of the church were Gentiles, not that many Jews in the church. And one of the reasons they would say that is because Paul doesn't really go back at all to the Old Testament when he teaches on this particular book. He stays really with new ideas and assuming that they didn't have, in one sense, a Jewish history that they were to draw on. But understand also, the Jews here, as they go out to get Paul, they go down and they pick up these thugs to basically do their dirty work for them. And this would have really been contrary to who they are. Because they would have viewed these people as those unclean, those guys over there. And they would have stayed away from those kind of people. But they go gather them, try to get Paul and, and, and his, his friends, and they try to obviously they were going to try to either harm them or put them in jail. And then they also then go to the authorities. Now, now, recognize this again. The Jews hated the Romans. So they're using the savory people, the thugs of the day, and then they go to the rulers of the day, both trying to go after and thwart the gospel. And and doesn't that sound a little bit familiar like today? That there's people that are actively working against the Christian faith. And we see that over and over again in in the news. But this church was birthed. God worked. The Spirit worked. And, And I think for us, there's a little bit of a reminder here that when God is working, It doesn't matter what is taking place in the culture around us. Even though a government is anti-faith, anti-religion, anti-Jesus in particular, is that when God begins to work, things happen. Light shines out of darkness when the Holy Spirit moves. But Paul, under pressure, stays just a short time and then he moves on to Berea and he spends time in that city. If you remember, he, he was debating in one sense. The Brians were testing to see what he was saying. And eventually he moves on to a city by the name of Corinth. And he stays there a number of years. And So this, is, so this letter, it would have been a couple years, two to three years probably, after he had visited the city. And he is hearing reports about this city, but he also loves this group of people. And he wants to know how they're doing. So he actually sends Timothy back to get a report and to say, how, are, "How is this church, the people that I loved? How are they doing?" And then Paul writes them a letter. And again, he loves this church that he founded. And it's a very personal letter. And, and turn in your Bibles in the First Thessalonians chapter one, I'll, I'll put some verses on the screen, but look at verse one. Paul, Silvanus, Silvanus, which is Silas, and Timothy, to the church of Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Do you sense this? Oh, I love you guys. I care for you. But there's one other piece here that's different than some of his other letters. He doesn't appeal to himself as an apostle. If you were to compare the greetings in many of the other letters, he goes, I, Paul, an apostle. But here he leaves that out, and I think intentionally, because of his close personal friendship with this local church. And he loved them profoundly. But look at verse 2. He's praying for this church. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Paul was a man of prayer. He regularly prayed for this church. And I think as I paused and I ponder that, I go, folks, if this is your church, if Grand Rapids Evangelical Free Church is your church, I would encourage you and exhort you to pray for us. Yes, there's lots of individual needs within us, but as Paul looked and prayed for a church, he was praying that God's power would come and that there would be influence through an area because of a church. And and I would encourage you, please pray for us as leaders and collectively as a church that we might be like this church at Thessalonica. But here's where we need to do some thinking. Because this church in 1 Thessalonians, this, this area, this time period, there was great cultural and governmental antagonism toward the faith. People who were coming to faith. And this is why I think it's so relevant for us. When you look at a growing antagonism toward Jesus and all that he stands for, they were in almost the exact same spot, maybe a little bit worse even than us. And I would remind you, even for today, we live in a post-Christian culture. And I think we assume sometimes that we live in this Christian quote Christian nation. And I would say this, it's gone. And we as a church and churches who follow Christ are going to have to learn to deal with it. And, and this is why the letter speaks to us so directly. But let me just give you the first point and the general what I see in chapter 1. And really there's an application here for us because I think this is what they were doing. So for us, to deal with the world around us and, and where it's moving. Number one, I said it this way, as a church, we need to continue to pursue a love relationship and a dependent relationship with God. If I were to look at this 1 Thessalonians Church. When you read through the whole letter over and over again, you find that this church was following God. They were pursuing God. And I think that statement maybe summarizes what's going on inside the church. And picture Paul standing up here. If you were to go back to that church say, guys, you're following Christ. Keep it up. Keep going. Keep following Him. Keep pursuing Jesus. But understand as well, Paul knows that they have a reputation. And he wants to encourage them by telling them what their reputation is all about. And that's really where we come to verse 3. This is a line of encouragement, but it's revealing to what is going on in the church. Look at it, verse 3. We give thanks and, that, and then he's praying, remembering before our God and our Father and here's what he's seen: your work of faith and your labor of love and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ faith, love, hope. does that sound familiar to any of you? let me put the other Verse, verses where Paul wrote this again. 1 Corinthians. He addressed this to the church at Corinth. And as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. and I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways, and, but now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. But maybe to say it like this, when a church grows up, when a church becomes effective, When a church begins to love God, the characteristics are faith, love, and hope. Gene Getz, you maybe know that name, wrote a book, The Measure of a Church. And it's what he says is the measure, the understanding. And when a church is moving toward Christ and effective, it's faith, hope, and love. But also, it applies to us, I think, in some succinct ways. Now understand, as he walks through this, he begins to kind of, looking at their reputation, he begins to tell them and unpack what then, as you're walking with God, what are some of the pieces to that? And those letters, first one, if you're taking notes, I said it this way, letter A. What is that work of faith that he tells them about, that he sees in their lives? And I think it's this, a work of faith is believing and living out the gospel, A church here is working out their faith. Now, what does that phrase mean? Because if some stop, you could scratch your head and go, well, does that mean I have to work for my faith? Work hard for whatever, for salvation? The answer is no. It's not working to gain faith. But let me show you from another text and actually the words of Jesus, really what that probably means. John 6.26, and I'll put it on the screen there, you don't have to turn to it. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them. And here's the phrase, This is the work of God that you're to be doing. That you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's the work of faith. The work of faith is this, is that we keep central in our lives the cross of Christ. We keep central what it means to be a child of God. What God has done through His Son Jesus Christ. It means to keep the mission of God. God reconciling Himself with this world. To keep that central in our lives and not to forget it. And I believe that this church kept the focus on the gospel, on the cross, on what Jesus is doing, on them being a part of the mission of God. They understood that that was the work of faith that they were talking about. It's maybe a little bit when he wrote to the Philippians, for me to live as Christ. See, when we meet together as a church, Jesus must become more important. And the challenge is is that there's so many things that can crowd out Jesus. And we can lose sight of Him and what He has done through the cross. We can lose sight of the mission of God, that God wants to reconcile people to Himself. But I believe that this Thessalonian church understood in the midst of persecution that they needed to keep Jesus central. And I think many people today, and it's easy for us to forget this work of faith in our lives. And too often when society throws away biblical morals. Now here's where we go. I think we forget faith and here's what we tend to kind of head down. We really believe that political activism is the answer when a world starts moving down a wrong path. And the answer to that is, political activism really doesn't do a whole lot. And this church, First Thessalonians, that's not where they went. They went and remembered faith. Now, do we sit by? The answer is, is no. But we have to recognize that the real antidote to God correct society, to move society different, is not about convincing them that something is wrong, it's about Jesus. Jesus is the answer. The cross is the answer to the world today. And we keep thinking we can change morals without people having faith, and it, it, it just won't work. And I'd I'd remind you, you can teach people to have good biblical morals. But listen carefully here. Good morals without faith in Jesus still means eternal separation from God. That's the challenge for us. But if a church, even in our day, if we want to survive or thrive, it needs for us to be centered on loving Jesus and sharing Him with a lost world. And in Acts 17, we see that God worked and it upset the darkness. And it turns, as the phrase it turns the world upside down. And that can even happen today in an antagonistic world toward the gospel. But Paul also develops this issue of faith even more through the next few verses. Look at verse 9. Because they had this reputation, look at what it says here. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. But look at how faith worked out. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. When people's lives change, when faith works in a church, when people are working for that faith, they're turning away from idols And they're turning to the living God. Now understand, we don't have idols like they did. We don't have poles. We don't have, there's some cultures yet today that do that. But ours and our culture are more subtle, aren't they? Money can be an idol, toys can be an idol, pleasure can be an idol. And see, the question might be asked, what would happen if our reputation as a church in this place were to be changing from getting rid of idols and move to worshiping God? And I think what would happen, people would walk into our church and they'd leave with this belief. There would be this subtle sense where they go, these people are living for Jesus. And if that grew and grew and grew it would be a light in a dark world. Folks, it's it's profoundly attractive when the Holy Spirit works. People begin to realize the futility of their living for the world. And people begin to ask questions and ask, why are you so satisfied in, in this world? And you can answer, Jesus, that's the answer our lives become attractive to people. Let me go a little bit deeper here. Because this work of faith that we're talking about, salvation that we're talking about, is grounded in the work of God. Look at verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our Gospel came to you not only in words, but also, look at this, in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction do you notice the words that take place when god begins to work in the life of a church power conviction holy spirit working so when the holy spirit begins to give power and conviction a church will grow even in a hostile environment and that church was thriving and still being persecuted. It had nothing, you look back at that church, it had nothing to do with having the best preaching, the best music, the best welcoming committee, the best nursery, the best youth ministry, the best children's ministry. That wasn't why that church was growing. See, this church had a reputation and it was for changed lives They had a reputation. They were turning from idols and worshiping God. See, the question might be, what is our reputation as well? But what was the Holy Spirit there convicting them of? The obvious answer is sin. But it was convicting them of saying, you're worshiping the wrong stuff. Turn from that. And conviction goes, oh, I've got to worship God. That's repentance, really. It's turning from idols and going, I'm going to give my life to God and I'm going to walk toward Him. See, when church, when conviction comes, when the Holy Spirit works, those idols, they don't become attractive anymore. And God becomes attractive and goes, I want to seek Him. And people realize that their futile living is that it's futile. And they turn and they pursue God. But let me just dig a little bit farther here, yet even. Because there's a quality to their faith that even comes out here. Look at verse 6. And you became imitators of us in the Lord. Their lives were changing. But you received the word in much affliction. And look at this next phrase. With the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So they received the word, they accepted the gospel, persecution is taking place, but there's that qualifier. They did it with joy. A church that can handle a hostile world can actually be joyful. But Think, think with me here when hardship normally comes, when the world starts throwing words and you're intolerant and you're this and you're that, when that hostility comes, here's a church that demonstrated joy. Do you know what is more typical when hostility comes toward us? Depression. Anxiousness. Fear rises up. We look around and we go, Oh, I just, the world, I got to avoid it. When it's going down the tubes, we we tend to want to respond with fear, with trembling. But this church in Thessalonica, they were joyful. They were joyful. Are we joyful? Because of what the gospel has done in our lives. But this church, had a reputation and joy in the midst of persecution. And it was spreading through all of the land around there. And and folks, there was no advertisement on a Christian radio station back then. This was people walking through and what's going on in Thessalonica with that church? And it was going from city to city. Their reputation was spreading all across the land. But what if I did this? What if I sent a couple of you out and went maybe I send you this afternoon down to Target, sit outside, and you get your little clipboard. You know how when the malls where they want to take a survey. But you began to survey people and ask this question: What do you think about Grand Rapids Evangelical Free Church? What if we do that in front of Target or Walmart or someplace in town? Hey, what's your opinion of this church over there on 63, over by the? What's the reputation? What would we? What do we think our reputation is as a church? Vessel and I had one. You catch that? I, I asked a question in the audience in the in the first audience at first hour, and I said this. What would if? This church ceased to exist tomorrow. Would it make a difference in anybody's lives in the community? Would the community care? What do we say to that? It's a hard question, isn't it? Because the question is, by removing a light in the community, does it matter? Should it? Yeah. See, what is our reputation as a church Let me give you another piece to this church's reputation. Look at verse 3 again. Another part to their reputation. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. And look at the next phrase. And labor of love. He's using this idea of labor in the same breath as the word love. Now here's what I think it means. Letter B for your notes. People who love... Work to serve the one they love. I Understand, there is a cost to follow the one that you love. It always co- is, it's always costly. But I'll say this, when you serve out of love, it is joyful. If you love your spouse, you love to serve, don't you? But when one doesn't love, more than likely, they don't probably know the one that loves them the most adequately as well. And working without love, even in the context of the church, there won't be much joy. It'll be drudgery. But this word labor means to toil, steady, hard. Work at love hard. It's pretty hard to claim that you love Jesus and you're not working to serve. John wrote that. You say you love God, but you don't love your brother? He's going, I'm doubting whether you actually love God. But that understanding is that real love is an expression when you serve out of real love, it's an expression of the faith that we do have. And real love involves serving people. Who is your neighbor? Loving your neighbor as yourself. And it's tangible expression of that and acts of love toward people. But let me push you Father. Verse 8. Look at how it expands it here. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth Everywhere, so that we need not say anything. So they're serving out of love, and because of faith, they love and they're looking to serve, and it's spreading. It's making a difference in their area. We think that advertising makes a difference for a church to grow. I go, no, it's acts of love, serving, living out our faith. See, the demonstration of this love for them in the midst of persecution, they don't just huddle up and go, oh, the world is getting bad out there. They knew they were loved by God, but it resulted in them spreading that love through their surrounding community. Laboring in love pushes us to express to an antagonistic world that God so loves the, the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Love demands that we express the love of God to this world. And God is that God is reaching out. And there's people out there in Grand Rapids, in Bovey, in all the surrounding communities. What's going on? God is working in people's hearts. And what they need is what? Jesus. They need the gospel, they need the good news. But there's a third reputation as well here. Look at letter C. I I said it this way. A church that thrives in a fallen world puts their hope in God. That's that third part of their reputation. Look at the end of verse 3. Paul is giving thanks in the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope will not come from winning a war on morality in our culture. It it just won't work. It has to move much beyond that. But this church in Thessalonica lived in a world of active antagonism toward them and persecution, and it flourished. And if Paul were to come back and he walked up here this morning, I think he'd be standing this. He'd be saying this to us hey, don't worry. You know why? Jesus is coming back. That's where hope is found. Jesus is coming back to get us. And He's going to bring us back. That we're, Hosanna! Jesus is coming again. The reality of the present and all of the antagonism, the stuff that's going to be going on even in years ahead, don't worry about it. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. That's where hope is found. See, I I think we assume that if the government changes or if we're not persecuted, well, that's that's where we can have some hope. And you go, no. We have a hope for a better future. This is not our real world. This is not a real home. This is a temporary place for us. Hope is not dependent on our government or the morals of our culture to change. That's not where hope comes from. It's on the resurrection and because God is working. That's where hope comes. It's dependent on Jesus coming back and He's going to usher us in to a new kingdom, to a new era where we get to be with Him without persecution, without antagonism. And He's coming back. But look at verse 10 how he wraps it up in that first chapter. And to wait, they're waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the coming from, from the wrath to come. Paul understood something here. I think he was acutely aware that it was going to get harder for this church. I think God had revealed to him that there was more wrath coming, that the Roman government was going to get more antagonistic toward people of faith that knew Jesus. And he goes, don't worry about it. Jesus is coming back. Do we wait for Jesus to come back? And I hope He comes pretty soon. That would really be nice, wouldn't it? But here's the thing. As we look at the summarize this first chapter, these people are moving and loving God. But maybe to apply to us, what would happen if Grand Rapids Evangelical Free Church, our reputation as a church, and, and, and where it would be a v- very much of a, a deep, true concept, what if our reputation was faith? We're working for faith. They're laboring in love. And that there would we would be exhibiting hope to a lost world. That becomes a healthy church, a thriving yeah. church in a world where more chaos is coming. Why don't you stand and let's pray? Father, I uh, again would ask that Your Spirit would come with power and conviction, and that our this place, this body of believers, that our reputation would move toward faith, remembering the good news that Your Son has died for us, and wanting to give that away. Lord, that it would also our, our reputation would be on of a church that loves profoundly. That we're giving away the gospel because we love people. We're serving each other because we love. That we're giving our lives away and worshiping you because we love you. But Lord, would you also help us become a place of hope. That when people come into this place, when people connect with our lives, even when we're out in the world, that they would see hope in us. That they would look at us and go, why are you so joyful. And Lord, would you give us the ability to answer, it's because of our hope is in you. So Lord, help us become a church more and more that's characterized by faith, by love, and by hope. So thank you for this passage and for this church that reminds us where we need to head as a body. And we thank you again for your word. These things we pray in your name. Amen. Greet somebody around you. Maybe you don't know somebody next to you. I encourage you to greet them and have a great week. Remember, there's hope in Jesus.